So, good morning. Welcome, my name is Ben, I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them up today to Esther chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 9. Esther chapter 5, 9, all the way through chapter 6, the end, that's chapter 13. So far in the book of Esther, chapter 1, we found ourselves in the palace. Vashti was removed as queen. Chapter 2, we meet the protagonists, Mordor and, uh, Mordor, Mordecai and Esther, as Esther becomes queen. Chapter 3, Haman plots to kill the Jews. Chapter 4, Mordecai and Esther plan the rescue. Chapter 5, Esther throws a party for the king and Haman. And now in the second half of 5 and the rest of 6, we see the pivot. The great pivot of the book, palace, protagonist, plans, plots, party, now, pivot. Because today is when the trajectory of the story begins to turn. This entire book so far has been going down, down. In this passage, it's going to go a little bit further downhill. Things are going to get even worse a little bit uh, this week. But then, with the pivot, it turns upwards. Finally, in this passage, we see things starting to turn, and throughout the rest of the book, we're actually going to be able to look back at chapter 6 as the moment that God worked the beginning or started his work of the salvation of the people of Israel. So the pivot is what we see today. Now, when I was in high school, um, I did something that I think many of us probably have the chance to do in high school. It's sort of a rite of passage. Uh, in high school. Uh, it was in my high school biology class. Uh, I had the chance to dissect a frog. Um, yeah, some people loved it. Some people did not like it. Some people uh, felt very uncomfortable, <laughs> very uh, unsettled by what they were doing when they were dissecting that frog. Why did we dissect that frog? What's the point of dissecting frogs? Why is it that dissecting frogs has become just kind of the, the go-to thing you do in high school biology? Is it because we really need to know about frogs? Is it because core to our education is how frogs work? That's not why we dissect frogs. I mean, when I dissected my frog, I opened it up, and what did I find? I, find it, I found a heart. I found a, a stomach and muscles and ligaments and bones and lungs. And In other words, I, I found a lot of things that are true, not just of frogs, but of us, of any living creature, maybe except jellyfish. We study frogs because by studying frogs, we, or the insides of frogs, we learn about all of us. It gives us a window into how all living beings are created and constructed. It, 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 it helped me understand how I was made. And so in this passage, we're going to see the pivot, but we're going to see the pivot through the eyes of Haman. The eyes of Haman and for a little section through the eyes of the king. But as we see the pivot in this story through the eyes of Haman, it's going to give us a picture of Haman's heart. In other words, what we're going to get to do as we dive into this passage is we're going to get to dissect Haman's heart. Why? Why is it important to dissect Haman's heart to understand what's happening in him? Well, it's kind of the same as with the frog. It might make us a little unsettled to see what's in Haman's heart. But the reason we need to see what's in Haman's heart is because when we learn about how his heart works, it's going to give us a picture of how our heart works. In fact, the thing that's unsettling about dissecting Haman's heart isn't just the fact that it's yucky, though it is. What's unsettling, for me at least, about dissecting Haman's heart in this passage is that as I look at it, I realize it looks a lot like mine. And I don't want it to look like mine. And I wonder if, as we go through this passage, maybe some of you will feel the same way. That you'll see this, the inside of this wicked, evil heart and think, oh man, that's me. <laughs> that's me. 
But there is gospel hope there, and we will see that at the end. But first, let's pray. Give this to the Lord, and then we'll dive in. Esther chapter nine, or sorry, five, verse nine. Let's pray. Father, the reason that we're here this morning is you. If you didn't exist, we wouldn't be here. If you sent your son to die, or if you didn't send your son to die and rise back again to life, we wouldn't be here. Uh, But Father, because you are who you are, because you've done what you've done, and because you have revealed all of that to us through your word, we're here this morning to praise you for it. God, you deserve it. You're a good father. You're worthy of our praise. And you're worthy of our praise by the way that we sing, the things that we sing. We wanna, we wanna sing to you the great things about who you are, but Lord, we also wanna live for you in such a way that honors who you are. So I know I pray this every week, I'm gonna pray it again. Father, I pray that this morning you give us a better glimpse of who you are, that we would praise you more accurately, but Lord, you'd also change us so that as we live in this world, we would live in such a way that glorifies you, that honors you, that pleases you. And not just that, Lord, we believe that when we live according to your will, guided by your wisdom, not only is it for your glory, but it is for our good. The depths of joy are found by a life that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we wanna be shaped by you this morning, Lord. But we will not be shaped by you if we're not convicted by you of the things in us that need to change. So Father, first convict us. And then help us change by the power of your spirit, by the blood of the cross. God, we, we have no hope of changing, if not for what you have done and will continue to do in us. So we ask you to work. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. Esther has a request for the king. She wants to save the people of Israel. So what does she do? Last week, she throws a party. She wines and dines the king. And along with the king, she wines and dines one other person. Who is it? Haman. All right. So this is where we're at, starting in verse 9. And Haman went out that day, that is, he went out from the feast, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promises with which, sorry, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Dramatic pause. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. All right. So Haman's feeling pretty good about himself, and of course he is. There's about 50 million people in the empire of Persia at this point, and out of 50 million people, he alone was chosen to be honored along with the king. So he's number two out of 50 million. That's a pretty good ratio. 
He's doing pretty good for himself. In fact, you can't get much higher than that in the kingdom. So because of that, he is pretty pumped about it. And the thing that he does in, in light of just his excitement about all of this is he, it, actually the same thing that we see the king do in chapter one. He throws a party for himself. He throws a party and gathers a bunch of people together in order to show off how great he is. Let me just read again what it says, verses 11 and 12. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me, I love those words, no one but me, come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I invited by her together with the king. So, I mean, these, these words, I think they might be for us um, maybe the first cut in the dissection of the heart of Haman. We get our first peek of what's actually happening in his heart. And as we look into it, I don't know how you feel when you hear him talking like that, but for me, uh, I hear him talk like that, and the first word that comes to mind is it's a little pathetic. Right? Like, he's, he's boasting and bragging. He wants people to know about how great he is. This is uh, the first peek into his heart. What we see is pride, and we see, we see arrogance. And I know for us today, we have kind of an unwritten rule, right? That you don't talk about your successes. You don't, you don't want to brag about your, uh, your, your greatness or the things that you've done. We know that that's a little bit unbecoming, right? It's not attractive when somebody does that. We've been on the other side of that, and it's annoying. Uh, but we don't have a word for that in English. Uh, the Swedish people do have a word for this. Because in, apparently, I learned this week, in Swedish culture, it's even, much, it's even more unbecoming. It's even more socially frowned upon. The word in Swedish for this is jantalogen. Uh, um, nobody, I'm sure, is able to correct me on that. So just, there it is, jantalogen. Yeah, yeah. Jantalogen uh, is a, it's a social disapproval uh, for talking about your own successes. A social disapproval for talking about your own successes. You know, we understand that. It's unbecoming. But apparently, for the Swedes, it's even more unbecoming. Even the Swedes, though they don't want to talk about it, at the same time, they still want you to know the great things they've done. This week, I saw an interview with Benny Anderson, one of the four, um, one of the four singers from ABBA. And uh, don't ask how I got to watch the... <laughs> But I saw this interview, and this is where I learned about this word, jantalogen, uh, because in this interview, they were talking about it and how it is so frowned upon in Swedish culture to brag about yourself and to, uh, to laud your greatness. And this is what Benny Anderson says. I remind you, Benny Anderson, the most successful musician of Swedish history. Good luck naming another, but he is great in the eyes of the music world. This is what he says. It's not very becoming to brag, is it? Especially when you don't have to. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, right? He doesn't want to brag. Their, their culture tells you don't brag about the great stuff you've done, but he wants you to know. He wants you to know, I am the, one of the four greatest musicians in the history of our country. I just need to throw that in and, and to point that out to you. And so what's true of Haman is true of all of us, even people who live in cultures that extremely look down upon, upon bragging and, and boastfulness. What's true of Haman is true of us. We don't want to brag, but we want people to notice. We don't want to brag, but we want people to notice. People's opinion of us matters. 
And maybe one of the most uh, iconic uh, examples of this in, from our culture happened in 1985 at the Academy Awards. Sally Fields. She won Best Actress 1985, and she had fame, she had fortune. She was well-known by that point, but still, she stood up in front of the Academy, in front of everybody, and said, I've wanted more than anything to have your respect, and I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. She had fame, she had fortune. What she wanted was approval. What she wanted was the opinions of others, to to think not highly about her. Uh, That mattered to her more than anything else. And, you know, I confess I might hide it better than Sally Fields and Haman and, and, and Benny Anderson and the King, but I desperately want people's approval too. I desperately want people to think good of me. When I do something good, I want people to see it. I want people to applaud it. I want people to see when I've done something good and throw me a party, a parade, to put a banner up about the great things I've done. I want people to see that I've done good, in other words, and conclude that therefore I am good. Because the more people that think that I am good, the more inclined I am to believe that, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe I am good. Maybe I am valuable. Maybe I am worthy of praise, of love, of honor. And I wish I was being sarcastic here. I wish I was blowing it out of proportion. Unfortunately, I'm being honest. Because when I look at the picture of Haman and I'm so unsettled by the the arrogance in his heart, what's unsettling to me is not just that it's yucky. What's unsettling about it is that it's a picture of what's happening in my heart. And I can imagine that if we are honest today, I wouldn't be the only one who would be able to say that. Because we look at the king, we look at Haman, we look at Sally Fields, and our Yentalogan, our American version of Yentalogan, tells us, man, it's a little, a little pathetic. But then we look in the mirror, and we realize that we're not all that different than them. At least I'm not. And we care more about what people think than anything else, more than fame, than fortune. And we look at people's opinions of us to tell us who we are. That's the first thing we see when we cut open Haman's heart. And it's unsettling. It, it is for me. It's convicting. But we're going we're gonna to put this whole train of thought down here for a minute. We're going to hop back into the passage. Because we've got to keep going, and then we will come back to the dissection of Haman's heart. Join me in the second half of verse 9, starting with when Haman saw. Okay. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman resist, uh, restrained himself and went home. He continues to tell about all, the, all of his greatness. And then we come to verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. So he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's on his commute home. He sees Mordecai in the gate, not standing up, and even though he's the second in the entire kingdom, even though he's done quite well for himself, Mordecai is the fly in the ointment. Mordecai is ruining everything for him. One man refusing to bow ruins everything, shatters everything. He's not able to be happy about the great thing that has happened to him because this one man doesn't bow down to him, doesn't tremble in fear. And I think just seeing that, it it brings me back again to that word I said before, pathetic. Why pathetic? Why is it that we can label Mordecai so pathetic? We, we, um, we feel it, but what is pathetic 
about the way he's responding in this passage. Here's why. Boastfulness is proof of insecurity. When we boast, it proves our insecurity. Now, you think it'd be exactly the opposite, right? You would think, at first blush, that if somebody is boastful, they are so extremely confident that they are just willing to tell you all the great things about themselves that it looks like confidence. But in reality, boastfulness is evidence of insecurity because, after all, who boasts? He who boasts, boasts in order to gain the admiration of others. Somebody who boasts, boasts in order to prop up your opinion of them. That's why they boast. That's why we boast. We boast so that you will see the good things that we've done and therefore conclude not just that we've done good, but that we are good. So the pathetic thing about Haman's boastfulness is the way that it shows his profound insecurity. Because when we build our value, our worth, and our identity on the opinions of other things, or other people, the opinions of people, two things tend to be true. Number one, we have to keep feeding it. And number two, we will very easily lose it. If we build our value and our worth upon the opinions of other people, we have to keep feeding it, and we will very easily lose it. We have to keep feeding it in order to prove to ourselves and to the world that we are still valuable, we're still as worthy of their love as we were before. You want proof of that? Again, Sally Fields, because I don't want to throw her under the bus too much, but that was her second Best Actress award. She'd won it before. She was told six years before in 1979 that she was the best actress in all of Hollywood, but still she needed to be told again. It wasn't enough to be told once. She had to be told again. We still think you're great, Sally. We still think we like you. Number two, we can very easily lose it. And that one's very easy to understand if we lose the respect of somebody else, if, they, if we do anything less than perfect, if we earn their critique, our value, our worth, it's a, it's a house of cards. It blows over with the slightest breeze, and I feel that. <laughs> because a compliment lifts me an inch, but a critique drops me a mile. Um, it's like what uh, Mark Twain said, I can go on a good compliment for two weeks, but for me, I can lay in bed and think about an insult I received two decades ago. We're so fragile. And not just, not just can we easily lose it, but I want to argue that we will lose it. The loss of the approval of other people is inevitable for two reasons. I have a lot of twos today. The second, first reason is because you're human. You're not perfect. You make mistakes. You'll fall short. You'll sin. You'll never do everything absolutely perfectly. And it's not a very big jump to go from I've made a mistake to I am a mistake. That's the first reason. The second reason is because, to quote the rock band Fuel, all that shimmers in this world will soon fade. In other words, including us. In other words, we age. We decline. We all believe this. We, uh, it's evidenced by Michael Jordan's game, uh, Tony Bennett's voice. Uh, just the way we speak, the, the way that we talk about being over the hill, which is just a very depressing expression to say. It's all down here from here, here folks. We go up, we, we improve for a period of time, but that improvement doesn't last eternally. At a certain age, at a certain point, these things that we might have looked at to earn the approval of other people become harder and harder and harder to maintain. 
So if we build our value, our identity, our worth on the opinions of others, then when you do less, when you're able to achieve less, you might conclude that you are worthless. And so it's a dangerous thing to build your identity on the opinions of others, as Haman saw. Haman comes home, he brags, and then he shows the fact that his insecurities are far deeper than his pride and that his flimsy, flimsy identity is very easily blown over. And his family gives him a quick fix. What they say to him is, just kill him. Simple fix. If he's not going to bow down to you, just, just kill him. I mean, you've already put a price on his head. He's going to die in 11 months. Why not just kill him today? Why not just kill him and then be happy when you go to the party? That's what they say. Let the gallows, let a gallows 50 cubits high, that's five stories, 75 feet. Think of a five-story building. Uh, be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So in other words, he wanted to destroy Mordecai, and their idea was destroy him in such a way that everyone will see it. I mean, how many buildings in, at this time do you think were five stories high? Chances are you could see Mordecai's body hanging on that gallows from miles away. The entire city would see that he had been defeated and being, was being shamed in front of the entire city. And it pleased him. <laughs> So like the king, he throws a party to show off himself. And then like the king, he gets hacked off when one person doesn't bow down to him, submit to him. Like the king, he gets some bad advice from other people. And then like the king, we read the exact same words, the bad idea pleased him. That's where we're at in the book so far. Let's dive back in then, into chapter six. Because as we hop back into the narrative, the, the current is gonna sweep us away again. And I'm gonna read the entire chapter now of chapter six. And it's gonna show us something about God and Amen. So let's keep going. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtha, sorry, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We learned about that back in chapter two, by the way. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Uh, really quickly, you want to honor the people who protect you, especially if you're a king who's trying to be killed by people. <laughs> you want people to want to be on your side. So that's what's going on here. And let's keep going. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows and he had prepared, uh, that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, he said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the, for the man the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, 
and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. There's a lot of coincidences here. And what we know from this book, and like actually from the entire Bible and the entirety of history, is that when we see coincidences, they're not coincidences. Coincidences are fingerprints of God. When we see coincidences in this book, it's evidence of God's silently sovereign hand working all things together. Now, I, I can't just move on from this and, and go back to the point of Haman's heart. We need to at least pause for a moment to see some of these coincidences. But by the time we come to, uh, to Esther chapter 8, we're going to do a full look at the sovereign hand of God, the invisible hand of God, his fingerprints everywhere in this book. So we're going to come back to this. But right now, let me just point out some of the main features. The first thing we have to see is that this pivot that happens, who brings it about? Is it because Haman, or sorry, is it because Mordecai is in the king's chamber saying, hey, don't forget what I did? Is it because Esther is in the king's chamber saying, oh, do you remember how somebody saved your life a couple weeks ago? Who brought about this reminder? Who reminded the king? Everyone's asleep, except God. The king is alone in the middle of the night. Everyone is asleep. But God, in his silent sovereignty, reaches in and starts this turn, this pivot. God is the one who brings this about. And as everything else plays out here, just notice the coincidence. Notice how everything's balanced. As Haman was building the gallows to end Mordecai's life to dishonor him, the king was learning how Mordecai saved his life and decides to honor him. As the king sends servants to find the closest court member to carry out this honor, Haman was coming into the court to ask permission to carry out his murder. As Haman wanted to lift up Mordecai's dead body and make a spectacle of him in front of the entire city to show how Mordecai was below him, the king had him go clothe and lift up Mordecai's royally clothed body onto a horse and make a spectacle of him in front of the city to show that Mordecai is above him. It's exactly swapped. It's an exact, perfect coincidence. I think not. These are the fingerprints of God. And in chapter 8, we're going to see that more and more. But what we have to see today is, is actually going back to Haman's heart. Because we're not quite done with the dissection of, of Haman's heart to see what's going on in there. We're going to take one cut deeper and see one more thing about our own pride and our own identity. Because when Haman asked what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, what, is, what does Haman say, right? He, he first assumes, well, he must be talking about me. And then, what does he say? Dress him in the king's clothes. Put him on the king's horse. And then parade him through the city. In other words, what does Haman say? He says, treat me like the king. 
He's number two. Over 50 million people, he's number two. But what does he want? He wants to be number one. Number two isn't enough for Haman. He wants to be number one, and he thinks he sees a way that he could reach out and grab that, that he could, he could achieve that greatness, that he's actually treated like the king. And, but it's that exact thing that leads to his fall. It's the fact that he reaches for still greater greatness that proves that he will never be content with the greatness that he's already given. This is the third and final lesson that we have to learn here, that we learn from Haman's heart. That if we look to the opinions of others, not only will our pride have to be fed continually, but no height of success will ever be enough. The appetite for glory of a prideful heart is the same as an appetite for money in a greedy heart. The question, how much is enough? The answer, more. I want more. In fact, the taste of this pride, or the taste of glory, the taste of success does nothing but build in us a, a deeper hunger for that success, for that, for that admiration. A prideful heart's appetite for glory is insatiable. And Haman wants it, he makes a grab for it, and it's the very thing that begins his downfall. And in the prophetic words of his wife and lousy counseling friends, you will surely fall giving us a foreshadowing of what's to come a little bit later in the book. When we dissect Haman's heart, it helps us to understand that what we see in his heart is actually what we see in the prideful heart of all people. Right? When we, we learn that if we find our worth, our value, our identity in people's opinions, we have to keep feeding it, we can very easily lose it, and it will never be enough. So where do we look for our value? if not the opinions of other people? Where do we look to our, for our worth? Where, where do we look for our identity? Where do we look for the answer to the question, who are we? Because the answer here is not by looking around. We don't look around to find our identity, our worth, and our, and our, and our value. But our world, it does have an answer to that question. Our world tries to answer that question, how do you find your worth, your value, and your identity like this? Not by looking around, but by looking inside. Not by looking around you to see what other people are saying about you, but by looking inside you to see who you truly are. That's the answer the world's giving. Uh, let me read you a handful of quotes uh, from the world uh, on how we find our identity and, and our value and our worth. And unfortunately, these are really easy to find. This whole list of quotes took me a total of five minutes to track down online. They're everywhere. This is where it is, what they say. When you're secure in who you are as a person, flaws and all, you gain confidence and self-esteem. When you look within, you feel complete and secure in who you are. Treat yourself, oh sorry, give yourself the attention and care that you deserve. Take time to improve yourself in the best way you can. Wash your face. Don't apologize. Listen to your heart, be true to who you are, brush off the haters, be boldly you. What's the key word? You. And that's what makes this advice so incredibly damning. This advice is dangerous also because it's half true. 
You're valuable. We're, we're valuable. We're created in the image of God. They got that right. But what's so incredibly damning about it is that this message is everywhere. It's on coffee mugs and, and mommy blogs, and sometimes it even parades under the, under the guise of Christian. It takes that name. But it's not the true gospel. It's the gospel of you telling you that the answer to all of your insecurities, all of your issues, comes down to what you can find in yourself. That you have to be your own savior. You have to find your own identity. You have to make it happen. You have to maintain it. You have to do all of this by your strength. But the gospel of you is the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Because if you put your hope in this message, in the gospel of you, the day will come where you will come to realize what you've known all along, that you're still a human, that you're still imperfect, that you still can't be God. <laughs> and on that day, that, that, that road will bring you down. You will find that you will, despite all your best efforts, despite your attempts to be perfect and to find the answer in yourself, you find you can't do it, all that's left for you then is to, to, to crash and to burn. There's no hope down that road. It's, it's a vapor, it's a smoke you'll unravel. But glory be to God, the gospel of you is the opposite of the true gospel because we do not find our value, our worth, and our identity by looking around us to other people. We do not find our value, our worth, and our identity by looking inside of us Rather, we find our value and our worth and our identity by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. The admiration of others is built upon what we have accomplished or we can accomplish. But the love of God is built on what Christ has accomplished. The gospel of you tells us that you have to find your hope in yourself, an imperfect person. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that you have to find your hope in him, the perfect person. The gospel of you says to find your strength in yourself in order to make yourself. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says you have to find your strength in the Lord because he has remade you by faith. The world tells us that we have to find and build who we are. But the Bible tells us exactly who we are. And I'm going to read off a bunch of passages now. They're not on the screen. I want to encourage you to close your eyes and to meditate over these it's the simple truth of God's word. This is what he says, and this is just a small sampling. Colossians 1, Colossians 1 says, that though you were once alienated and hostile in mind, now you are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, holy and blameless above reproach before him. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Romans 8, if children, then heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ of the kingdom. 1 Peter 2, we are a people of his own possession, <laughs> or as the NIV says, we are a people belonging to God, we're his. Romans 15, Christ has welcomed you. 1 Corinthians 6, we are one spirit with him. Romans chapter 6, we are no longer enslaved to sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 2, you are loved and he gave himself for you. This is just a small sampling, but the, what the word of God says about your identity, 
about who you are is that you are welcomed, you are united, you are set free, you are accepted, you are alive, you are reconciled, you are adopted children of God. That is according to the word of God by faith in the son of God. That is who you are. And it's not because you've earned it. It's not because you've done anything for that to be true of you. Why is that true of you? How could that possibly be true? Romans 5 eight. Because God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The place we look for worth, value, and identity, it isn't found by looking to other people to feed our pride. It's not found by looking within to tap into our true potential. We find our true and unshakable worth, value, and our identity by keeping our eyes fixed on the one who made us, on the one who loved us, who died for us to redeem us as his own. And only he has the right to tell us who we are. And he says we're his beloved. That's what he says about us. So, Christian, look to the cross. Look to the cross and meditate upon the unearned love that he has lavished upon you. <laughs> Find rest in that freedom. Find rest in, from, the, from the hustle of trying to prove your value and your worth by knowing that there is nothing that you can do to change your identity in him. The work is complete. He will never love you more and he will never love you less. Maybe I should say it different. He had, could never love you more and he will never love you less. Our hope is this, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, I'm convicted by the reality that my heart looks a lot like Haman's. I want the praise of others. I want their admiration. I'm willing to boast to get it. Father, I'm sorry. Forgive me and convict us. Father, the first step to, to, to growth and to repentance is to have the Holy Spirit convict us and to show us that there are these, there's something not quite right in us. So Father, do a, send your spirit to do a work of conviction right now. Help us see this stuff in us and help us hate this stuff in us. Help us see that we're not perfect. But give us the grace and the, the rest of knowing that our, your love for us and our value is not based on our perfection. It's based on your perfection. Or that you died for us. You, you gave us a new identity. We are no longer who we were. We are adopted as children of God. Lord, that's, that's what you've done, not what we've done. And so, Father, I pray for people uh, today who are here, who are seeking out this message of Jesus and trying to wrestle with this question of who they really believe Jesus is who are maybe trying to decide whether or not they're actually gonna to follow Christ wholeheartedly with, with their lives. And I, just, I pray that uh, this picture of what you've done and the hope that we have in you would, uh, would help them see, Lord, help us see that though the cost is high, it, it costs laying down our entire life. The promise that you give us is better. Eternal life and the freedom to rest as we wait for our eternal reward. God, we love you. All this is true simply because you made it true. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Put your stand and worship.